The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. From the highest point on Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole Sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. We are live on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee and streaming online at wvfs.fsu.edu. I'm your host, Gary Putnick, and folks, I drove by the FSU football practice facility today, and I saw the double black hurricane warning flags out, and I got those chills, the, the rivalry, rivalry week chills. And I mean, it's FSU-Miami. It's the penultimate college football rivalry. It's the rivalry that all, all other rivalries wish they could be. It's Bobby Bowden. It's Jimmy Johnson. It's the wide rights. It's the wide lefts. It's the block at the rock. It's a, always a spectacle when these two teams get, take the field. And we'll be talking about this game, the game of the week, on tonight's show. Alongside UM student paper, the Miami Hurricanes sports editor, Isabella DiDio, in just a short bit. But first... As always, I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Austin Reynolds. Austin, Rivalry is upon us. Do you have a favorite FSU-Miami memory? 16, uh, because I have not been a fan of FSU football for all that, all that long, honestly. I, I was really introduced to FSU, ACC rivalries as a whole uh, pretty late, like once I actually started applying to colleges. So I was more of a Georgia boy up until then. Um, and it's been pretty doom and gloom ever since I got here. So nothing really to uh, shine on uh, over the past three years. But the block at the rock is definitely my pick. Yeah, that, I think that's what I'm going to have to go with right now as of just the recency of it. But it's been just it's always such a fun thing. And especially me from being in being from South Florida, it just means a lot more because it's always you go out with your friends down south. I have a bunch of friends who are Canes fans. I mean, Everyone loves to hate on each other. It's just, it's a whole lot of fun when these two teams get together. We also will ha be having Scott Clemens on Twitter at talk underscore Tomahawk. Give him and the Twitter a follow to keep up with tonight's show. And then also V89 sports anchor Bryce Roden will be joining us later on in the second half. So stay tuned for that. But for before we get to the actual talk about the actual football game, we got to talk about the big news from the weekend. And obviously it is the news of FSU football coach, uh, Mike Norvell testing positive for COVID-19 on Friday. He will not be coaching in this week's game against Miami. He said that he is feeling fine as of right now, and both his wife and daughter have tested negative for the virus. This means then deputy head coach Chris Thompson will be stepping in as the head coach. The first time FSU has an interim or a temporary head coach that isn't Odell Hagan's, you know, the first time in a while, it feels like. But uh, if you want a little bit of Thompson's record or his credentials, so to say, he is 51-21 and 21 record overall as a head coach. Majority of his head coaching time took place while he was at Abilene Christian from 2005 to 2011. And then in 2012, he was the interim head coach at Texas Tech where he won a bowl game after Tommy Tuberville uh, decided to resign and head out of Texas Tech. So Norvell is going to be coaching and virtually from his home for the next couple of weeks during practice in I don't really know how much in-game he'll actually be able to do. I know everyone's been floating around the picture of Norvell on the little robo uh, <laughs> thing with him on a Zoom, uh, Skype call or whatever. But that's, I mean, that's a thought. I'm not against any of, the, any of that, but I'm assuming it's really just going to be a lot of the during-the-week practices that he'll be coaching during, like, film sessions and s uh, stuff like that. But he really, he really the silver lining, though, that I know there it's tough to find a silver lining when it comes to coronavirus and all of this, but... It comes in the fact that Florida State was supposed to be playing this past weekend. They were supposed to be playing Samford, and it was going to be a home game here in Tallahassee. And Mike Norvell tested positive on Friday, so he didn't get the results back till Saturday, really. And so that would have meant Florida State would have been in a very, very tough position, whether to cancel the game or just play on like it's no like and just say that Norvell has tested positive and no one else has, so we're going to play. So they've got put in a very they got. I'd say they dodged a bullet when it comes to that, but but still, it's a wild situation. And Austin, what are your thoughts on it all? I mean, it's exactly like you just said. It's very fortunate that FSU did not have to play Sanford this week because if that news happened to break while the game was going on, that would have just been an absolute catastrophe. And even if it broke before, there would have been the controversy of, as you mentioned, does FSU play this game? Do they isolate Mike Norvell? Do they throw? I mean, they, they would have to have thrown uh, Thompson into the fire at the at the absolute last minute. Um, there would be no coaching from the uh, the hospital bed like Hugh Freeze a couple years back. But it, 
considering the circumstances, it just keeps piling up for FSU. Like, we've talked about individual players missing games already this season. Hamza Nasruddin, uh, DJ Matthews entering the transfer portal, we've touched on that a little bit. Nothing quite stings like losing your head coach, especially a first-year head coach who... I mean, I wrote about it for the FSV this week. I touched on the fact that FSU is trying to get Mike Norvell his first win as head coach of Florida State going down to Miami Gardens to take on the rival Hurricanes. It would have been monumental if that had happened. But, I mean, regardless of the outcome of this game, Mike Norvell is not going to be a part of it. It is going to be on Thompson. Uh, so it's just very unfortunate. An- another silver lining in this is that no uh, FSU players have yes. tested positive. Yes. So that is a huge right now. So that means no one will be lost due to COVID-19 in this game other than Mike Norvell at this moment. So that's a big upside. But how much of an impact is this really going to make on Saturday's game against the Hurricanes? Because when you lose your head coach, and especially when it's his only would have been his second game, it really just, it's a, I don't know, it's a kick in the butt because like you really lose any sort of momentum or any sort of coaching ability that he may bring to that table. And so I, I don't know really where they go. It's going to be a weird situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have no info on Thompson right now. I personally have not watched an Abilene Christian game in my life, so I don't know any of his tendencies, if he's aggressive, passive, whatever. But certainly there's going to be some differences between his coaching style and Norvell's. So what the guys were used to from week one against Georgia Tech, they're likely going to have to adapt to a different coaching style for this week. And then once you get to uh, Notre Dame next week, or is it Jacksonville State or Notre Dame? Jacksonville State and then Notre Dame. Okay, I I always get those two switched up. But regardless, going into the third game, you're going to have to adapt to Norvell's style again. So just this flip-flopping between approaches to the game is not going to be really conducive for success for FSU. Exactly. And like you said earlier, because it's that rivalry game, it would have been huge to get this first win against the Canes. Because really, it's his only in-state rivalry game of the season because they lose the Gators in... uh, Thanksgiving weekend now. Mm-hmm. So Florida State in their last three matchups against the Hurricanes are 0-3. Yes. And previous to those three games, Florida State was 7-0 and against the Hurricanes. So it's a real chance for a momentum shift and a real chance for the Hurricanes to settle in as maybe the better team in the ACC Florida schools. So is there really any chance the Knowles can take this one down south? As I like to say, there's always a chance the unthinkable can happen, uh, as we're going to touch on with my Falcons later in the show. I hate to bring, I hate to be the one to bring it up, but I mean, <laughs> face the music sooner or later. But back on track, there's always a chance. Um, I just think everybody would say the odds are stacked against FSU. Losing the head coach, uh, players still out. We don't know Hamza, Hamza Nasruddin if he's going to be ready to go for this weekend. So that would be a huge loss again. Um, it, it's, uh, it's looking grim. Especially when you we've seen how Miami's played. I mean, they have yeah. played pretty darn well against Louisville this past weekend when they were the game of the night uh, on ABC, but the Canes look darn good, and they got Derek King now, a transfer from Houston, who had his little tiff with, um, what's his name, uh, Dana Holgerson last mm-hmm. season, so he got out of town and is down in Miami. Cameron Harris, their running back, is playing really well, Phenomenal. and their defense, even without Gregory uh, Rousseau, they're playing well too, so the Canes seem to be going in the right direction, especially, and it's it's weird to see that because everyone thought they were just going to keep kind of trending downward after their first year with Manny Diaz. But Manny seems to be figuring things out right now and starting to write the shift or guess writing that big black yacht that he was on <laughs> a few uh, over the summer or over all the spring. But still, the Canes are going to be a tough, tough test for these Knowles. And uh, but I know we're going to get really into it with Isabella DiDio from the Miami Hurricane later on. But what is your key for victory right now for the Florida State Seminoles? My key is shutting down the running plays from Derek King because he's lauded as one of the best uh, dual-threat quarterbacks in the nation. That's his reputation at Houston. He put up huge numbers on the ground there uh, in, in his last full season that he played for them. And it, it, it might not have shown through in the game against Louisville over the weekend, but when Miami played UAB, he had 83 yards, or yeah, 83 yards, led the team in rushing, um, and a touchdown there. So... He can pop at any time. He's just a bomb waiting to go off. And looking at how FSU handled Jeff Sims, Georgia Tech's quarterback, who's also shown proficiency in the dual threat area, uh, he was actually Georgia Tech's leading rusher against FSU. Looking at how FSU dealt with him there, it doesn't really bode well for how well they're going to be able to shut down Derek King, but that should be the emphasis heading into this game. Yeah, that's a good one. I Personally, I think it's going to still be the offensive line. I know this mm-hmm. is pretty much the same for me all last year. Every single game is, what will the O-line do this week? And 
if the O-line doesn't show up, FSU just doesn't score. And you kind of need to score points to win a ball game. So it's really going to come down to how this offensive line works. And I don't know if they're going to be able to hold up in this game against Miami. And especially with some of the conditions that we've seen in South Florida, I know recently it's been pretty darn wet there. So it's going to be a run-heavy game. So that's really going to put a huge emphasis on this offensive line, more than ever, really. So it's going to be a lot of fun down there in Miami. I, It's real—jeez, I mean, the can- they're starting to worry me. The Hurricanes are starting to get me worried about this game, and I know you can— Starting. Yeah, starting, yeah. <laughs> Miami opened up at nine-and-a-half-point favorites over the Seminoles, so— it's. I really did expect them to be two touchdowns. I don't know about you there, but it's. it seems a bit small. I would agree with that. Just looking at the quality of Miami's win against uh, Louisville this weekend. UAB, you can't really take anything from because that is their one out-of-conference game. But obviously, Miami looked Im- impressive there. Um, it's, it's a stark difference between how these two teams are playing. So 9.5, I would agree with you, is a little conservative. Um, FSU, I mean... They they have the potential to make it close if the offensive line play can hold up, as you mentioned. But I, I do think that this uh, this game is going to be a little wider margin than that. And for a little bit of perspective, I believe the Hurricanes were about two and a half point favorites over Louisville at one point. So two or three. And they we won. Saw that out. Yes. And they won 47 to 34. So quite a big difference there. So I really do. Uh, it's. I know it's rivalry week. It's rivalry week. We can say that, and you can really lean on that, hey, maybe Florida State shows up and they get the blood going, but do they? It's. It feels like it's a little bit down and out at this point. I, More so than past years, I would say it's pretty much down and out because past couple of years when Miami has had FSU's number, there have been times during those games where FSU has looked inspired. They, they seem to have been uh, boosted up by the thought of rivalry week. And they've they've played higher than their potential. Uh, you think back to the 2017 season where it was James Blackman's first season at the helm, replacing DeAndre Francois, who went down with an injury game one. He played pretty well in that game, and FSU had a chance to win it with under two minutes remaining. But I mean, as we've touched on so far, like losing your head coach, that's a bigger blow than a lot of people realize. So I I, I don't really think that the rivalry week motivation is going to be much at play here. There were some reports about last week that Chubba Purdy could be returning soon. That's freshman quarterback Chubba Purdy, who was who had a broken collarbone, I believe, in a scrimmage in early August. He rumors are is that he could be returning soon if he were able to play in this game or if he was healthy. Do you think he would be starting over James Blackman? I don't think he would be starting, no. I think if the game got rough, then, uh, I was going to say Norvell, uh, Thompson might opt for Purdy later in the game just to get him some experience, see what he can do in a really low-pressure situation. Um, but if Purdy were ready today, I, I still think that James Blackman would get the nod just out of familiarity and trying to keep guys in the locker room bought in. Now, getting out of Norvell's head or Thompson's head, mm-hmm. would you start Chubba Purdy over James Blackman for week for this game? I would not. I would have to err on the side of caution there as well because, I mean, you, you like to play a guy when he's ready, but just a, a true freshman quarterback coming off an injury, I would not want to throw him to the Wolves right away, especially against a defense as fierce as Miami's is. At some point, though, it feels like the walls are crumbling down on James yeah. Blackman and crushing in. Is there is there any way that James Blackman will be the starter by week five? Let's call it after Notre Dame. After Notre Dame, well, that would be the time to make a quarterback switch because mm-hmm. I don't anticipate that game going FSU's way. Um, week five, I would say that's actually a pretty fair time to look at uh, Purdy or maybe even Rodemaker, probably not Jordan Travis, but some sort of quarterback change. Uh, I would say week five is a good benchmark for that. See, Jordan Travis would be a good option, but once again, it's just his lack of throwing ability. Mm-hmm. And it really hurts in that aspect of the game because you can't really have a quarterback that just runs the ball. Exactly. At that point, he's just a running back that takes the snap. So it really, I don't know, It. I wish Florida State maybe had a bit more of a clear answer where they could be going here, but with that Chubba Purdy collarbone injury, it really just put a stop to all conversation in the quarterback room, and it really just gave the job over to James Blackman. Yeah, it's 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 tough because the past couple of years, there's at least been some discussion about whether James Blackman will be the starter. Uh, 2018, obviously, with DeAndre Francois coming back from injury. And then 2019, Alex Hornibrook was was brought in. Uh, I know you were a big proponent of Hornibrook. Uh, ended up starting a few games, just not right away. So it, it, it could be a similar situation here where, I mean, obviously, start of the season, James Blackman got the job pretty much by default. 
But once we see once we see what FSU has with the other quarterbacks in the room, there could be some potential for change. If Alex if Alex Hornibrook was here in Tallahassee playing for the Knolls, would he be starting this game? <laughs> I really don't think so. Looking at what he put on the field in 2019, I think he would be firmly the backup. Yeah, no, I'd probably be taking James Blackman too. Yeah. My my allegiance would would dwindle a little bit because I <laughs> in the air and just err on the side of caution and go with maybe the better quarterback mm-hmm. here, but. Uh, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be joined by Isabel Dadio, like I said, of the Miami Hurricane, and we're going to have guess she's going to bring some great insight into the Hurricanes and what they've been doing and kind of what the atmosphere is like down there in Miami right now. I or sorry, Coral Gables. Exactly. Because, like I said, Miami, the University of Miami, is not in Miami, and yeah, I mean the the stadium isn't in Miami either. It's in Miami Gardens, uh, Hard Rock Stadium is. So. Just a little bit of salt in the wound. Uh, not really a wound because Miami's 2-0 and right now. FSU's not in such a good spot. But it's going to be great to get some insight from Isabella. Um, I'm really looking forward to what she has to say. And, I mean, <laughs> you, you look at the matchup here. Uh, De'Eric King, he has to be, like, the factor to look out for in this game. But we're going to get some insight right now. Yeah, and I'd like to welcome on the sports editor of the Miami Hurricane, Isabella DiDio. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? What is the vibe like right now down in Coral Gables as we enter Rivalry Week? Um, it's very, very exciting. Um, it's unfortunate because students aren't allowed at the game, so that kind of, you know, takes a little bit of the air out of the excitement. But it's definitely exciting because Miami has not had this type of team and this type of vibe for a, a couple of years now, so it's exciting. Well, that's I kind of want to lead off here with the students. Uh, do you think the lack of students and the lack of total attendance, it's now going to be roughly 13,000 at Hard Rock. Uh, how big of a uh, factor do you think that will play for either side, really, in this one? Mm-hmm. Well, just before I get into it, actually for the, our first home game against uh, UAB, which was two weeks ago, so Hard Rock is allowing 13,000 fans in, um, but for the first game there were – barely 8,000 people in the stand, so 5,000 less than what they are allowing, which is, like, pretty significant. Um, but I, I think it will have an impact. Uh, we played at Louisville this past weekend, and they have, like, a significant amount of fans in the stands, and I think that definitely, like, created a better environment. So I, I don't think it will be, like, a game changer, but I think not having that type of excitement especially when you're playing FSU and, like, the players are so excited, I think that'll definitely um, be noticeable. It's going to be so weird because I was in Miami for that the last time Florida State headed down there in 2018. Or was that 20? I guess that was was 18, yes. Yeah, 18. And after they got those couple turnovers in the second half, that the stadium was rocking. I was in the press box, and my drink was shaking in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, FSU... At home, at Hard Rock Stadium, sells out every year. So it's definitely a big disappointment for everyone. Um, I've got one question. This is Austin Reynolds here, co-host with Gary. Um, if you had to name an MVP for this team through the first two games, is it just De'Aaron King? Is it that simple? Or is there somebody else you're looking at? I, I, personally, I think it's that simple. It's De'Aaron King. I don't think that our first two games, Miami's first two games would have gone the way they did if De'Aaron King was not the quarterback. I don't think Miami will be able to win if Derek King is not playing well. Everything feeds through him. He is like the vocal leader of the team. His teammates absolutely love him, and he's he's the most talented quarterback that Miami has had in, I think, at least 10 years. So, yes, he is definitely the MVP of the first two games. Perfect. Thank you. That was a, hu- that was a huge get for you guys, bringing in uh, Derek King all the way from Houston there. So, is there anyone else on offense that we really need to be looking out for other than Cameron Harris? Because we know he's great. We saw the runs that he was putting on against Louisville this past weekend. But is there anyone else we really need to be looking at on offense for the Canes? Yeah, I think there are two other players who are pretty dangerous on offense. The first one is tight end Brevin Jordan. Um, obviously, he had a pretty great season last year. Um, when he is like in the mix in the offense and consistently being targeted he's so dangerous i don't know if you guys saw um the play against louisville where he like hurdled someone into the end zone he's like so athletic and if he's like in the flow of the offense it's pretty hard to stop him 
Um, and then the other player is a freshman running back, Jalen Knighton. He ha- he scored his first two touchdowns against Louisville last weekend. He's short, but he's incredibly fast, and uh, he's definitely someone that I think all of college football needs to be looking out for because he's very talented. It hurts a little bit more seeing Jalen Knighton doing what he's doing because for a bit he was committed to Florida State. He's a Deerfield yeah. he's a Deerfield yep. Beach boy, just a few yep. minutes down the road from where I'm from, down there in South Florida, but. It really hurts seeing what he's doing because, I mean, he looks good, and FSU sure does need a, a solid uh, tandem in the backfield right now. All right. Yeah, so, he's, yeah, he's performing well for us. So we've, we've sung a lot of praises for Derek King, the offense as a whole, uh, even the defensive line. Uh, but what is the one weakness of Miami that FSU can exploit on Saturday if they are to take this win? Um, I think the the area of the team that – struggled the most in the last two games is probably the defense I mean they did well overall but against Louisville they gave up 34 points which is an over 500 yards of offense so despite the fact that Miami won that game that's a lot of points and yards of offense to be giving up Um, and I know Louisville's like a good team but just going forward that's definitely something that needs improvement Um, so I, I would say yeah the defense as a whole overall that's that's kind of good news for us here in Tallahassee because <laughs> Florida State's offense really, I don't know if you watched the Georgia Tech game a couple weeks back, but it was not pretty offensively for Florida State. Their one scripted drive at the beginning was a success. The Norvella era, the Norvell era was off to a great start and then came to a uh, screeching halt later on in that game. Mm-hmm. But uh, getting uh, touching on your guys' head coach, Manny Diaz, uh, is he going to be the coach that brings the Canes back to a national title game? Because I know last season he was on the rocks. The hot seat was starting to be turned up a little bit for him, but now he seems to maybe have everything under control now. Yeah, no, definitely. Last season was definitely a big test for him, a test which I do not think he passed. But this season, he before the season even started, he already you know, had people on his side because he brought in so many uh, different pieces with players and coaches, um, a new offensive coordinator. So I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but <laughs> so far, everything he's done so far has been very positive. Yeah, and one of the big things that he did was, I mean, you touched on bringing in a new offensive coordinator, and as a result, it was getting Dan Enos out of there. And how big was it to really get Enos out of that system and really let and it seems to be paying off really because Derek King is flying around the field and that might just be because he's a great athlete but how big was it getting a new uh, fresh face in there offensive coordinator wise honestly I think having a new offensive coordinator and it being Rhett Lashley um, from SMU is like probably the biggest and most important change that Miami made in the offseason um, our offense was Miami's offense was like basically non-existent last year it was so sporadic and just overall not great so having Rhett Lashley who is from SMU runs like a very fast pace up tempo like air raid spread type of offense um and having Derek King a quarterback who is equally good at running and throwing and having weapons um in receivers and running backs I think it's a perfect match for everyone, and I think he brings a total new look to the team. Um, I don't know if you watched the Miami-Louisville game, but there were two plays, two touchdown plays that were 75 uh, – they were both 75 yards, and then there was one that was 47 yards, I believe. And those were, like, special design plays that Rhett Lashley, like, went over in detail with his players. Um, so I think he is so, so important to the success of the team this year and going forward. I do remember those two 75-yard touchdown runs. Those were the first two to lead off the second half for them. I think there was 150 yards, two plays, a total of like 20-something seconds. But those those ones were so well-designed. It fooled the Cardinals' defense so well. I mean, they literally had no one on the right side of the field both times. For both of those plays, I just sat there scratching my head. as like, how do you not have a second person on the side of the field there to defend? I mean, I mean that's just great. I guess that's just great offensive coordinating on uh, – Lashley's behalf but still it's a it's a little bit head scratching there but I want to touch on a uh, couple other things here for on the defensive side we've already touched on the offense now 
who is the big player that we're going to need to be looking at this uh, week for the uh, for the defense, and how would they or how are they going to fare stopping this FSU offense? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest, most important person on defense at the moment is safety Bubba Bolden. He um, he had a career high eleven tackles, I think, last game. And I know you guys have a receiver. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Who's like six four? Tamari um, Terry. Yeah, him. Sorry, I couldn't remember his name. But um, I think Bubba Bolden is. He didn't play last season because he was injured. But he's six three. He's like fast as heck. And I think that he is someone who will sort of like come into his own on the defense. Um, and he's already sort of done that. Uh, so I think he's someone to look out for. And then um, someone else I would say is defensive end Jalen Phillips. He uh, he probably wouldn't be starting uh, right now if, it, if Greg Rousseau hadn't opted out of the season. But uh, he was the number one recruit in the class of 2016. He transferred here from UCLA. He's massive and he's like – Transformed himself, transformed himself in the off season, and uh, he has a lot to prove. So I think he's definitely someone to look out for. I could imagine he's going to be giving the Florida State offensive line some issues this weekend because them on the on that side of the ball, Florida State does have a lot of issues when it comes to their line. I got mm-hmm. one last question before we let you go. Here is the U back. <laughs> That's all anyone can seem to be talking about <laughs> on social media and all the local papers. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because Kirk Herbstreit, who called the Miami Louisville game, was like, "Don't don't trust the local papers. Like that's <laughs> way too premature to say the U is back." And I kind of agree with him. I mean, it's it's only been two games, and I know for Miami fans, like winning two games like that is a huge deal because in the past couple of years they've been pretty bad. Um, so, like I said before, I don't I don't want to get ahead of myself and say the U is back, but I have a very good feeling about this team and the personnel and how the rest of the season is going to go. Will you be down at the game this weekend at Hard Rock? Yeah, I will. I uh, originally wasn't allowed to be to cover the game from the stadium for the first two home games because the no student rule applied to everyone. So okay. there's we had no band and no cheerleaders the first game. But uh, I just found out today that I'll be allowed in the stadium for the game, so that's exciting. Good stuff. That's great to hear. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to follow your tweets along through the game and read up on your post-game report afterwards as kind of get the, the hurricane perspective on everything because we know we'll have our outlets to give us the seminal perspective. But we really appreciate you for coming on this evening. Uh, hope you stay safe and hope we have a good game and hopefully it doesn't pour this weekend down in South Florida. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me, and good luck this weekend. All right, thank, thank you, you very much. See you later. Bye. Yeah, that was some great insight from Isabella. Um, getting to know some of the players on defense, I mean, just looking at the box scores, nobody really jumps out aside from Bubba Bolden, so I did expect her to bring him up, but uh, good to get the other perspective heading into the matchup tonight. I know that's something we missed uh, a couple weeks ago with Georgia Tech. For sure. And the one thing that obviously one of the big players that's going to stand out for me, it's Jalen Knighton still because of the fact that he was supposed to go to Florida yep. State. And then he backed out kind of at the last minute once Willie Taggart got uh, fired and seeing and seeing him play. And especially because he's that South Florida kid, that's someone that you got to be able to pull away from Miami because he's going to make you pay down the line, especially in these kind of games, because I don't know, I just don't trust the I don't trust Florida State right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but in a way, I feel like Jalen Knighton's going to be playing uh, with a chip on his shoulder, ready to prove something. Yeah, I mean, he's been lighting it up the first two games so far. And I did mention earlier for FSU, like there's going to be less of an energy uh, sur- surrounding this rivalry week. Rivalry week. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> but if there is one player on the field that's going to be driven by that motivation, it is Jalen Knighton just because of the his prior recruitment with FSU. One thing that's going to be interesting to watch, mainly pregame, is if is there going to be a little tussle this weekend? Because we know every single time there's no love lost between these two programs. And just about every single time they these two teams take the field, you'll see a little bit of a spat going on around midfield during warm-ups. I'm just wondering, is COVID times going to stop all that, or will players just keep going? I think players are going to keep going. I mean, if players get to bang on each other for 60 minutes, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, 
covering the field, then I, I think a little tussle is going to be nothing really to to worry about. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll be all fine. But I think that's all we got for this first half on floor. All right, actually, let's let's do predictions. Predictions oh, geez, for this okay. week's games. How could we forget? I think we really kind of gave away maybe our predictions throughout this half of the show. But bit of a somber tone. Austin, who you got in this one, and what's the final score? I got Miami in this one. It's no secret. I'm thinking somewhere along the lines of say 34. 20. I have confidence that FSU can put up 20 points on offense. Uh, week one against Georgia Tech might not have been the best indicator of that, but I mean, it's 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 going to be rough goings for the Seminoles. I'm going to be taking the Canes 27 to 17. It's not going to be a pretty one. It could rain this weekend, so that's always a possibility for slowing both of these offensive down offenses down. And thankfully for Florida State's sake. It's not a day game because yes. watching Miami Dolphins games down there in South Florida, you know, because once the, the, they put the away team on the other side of the field, the side that always gets the sun for the whole game. Mm-hmm. So that would be a killer. And hopefully if FSU was on that side during that time of day, they would be hydrated for sure. <laughs> not going to have any hydration issues, I hope. Yeah, let's Jeez. hope. But that game will be on at 7.30 on ABC. That's the game of the week. I know Florida State will also be having college game day, so there's going to be a lot of Florida State-Miami talk coming at you the rest of this week. For better but, or worse. Yes, exactly, for better or worse. But that's all we got for this first half of FSU talk. Our next, our next half hour, we're going to be talking about the NFL and the NBA playoffs, and we're going to be joined by Bryce Roden, a, a V89 veteran. So, We'll be back in just a short minute. You are listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Welcome back to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Before we get to some NFL and NBA talk, I want to touch on some of the other news in FSU athletics right now because we do have some sports going on around campus down here in Tallahassee. The FSU soccer team got their season started uh, this past Thursday with a 5-0 win over Notre Dame. They also shut out the Louisville Cardinals on Sunday 1-0. Mark Corian and his team now embark on a four-game road trip that will be taking place at Virginia Tech, Wake Forest, Pitt, and UVA pretty much for the whole month here in September. And they won't be coming back till I believe, October 28th. So it's going to be a long road trip for the Knowles, but they'll be coming back to Tallahassee soon where they do play in front of a, a socially distant crowd. I believe it's about 400 fans or so. So that should be cool when they come back to town. And also, FSU golfer John Pack won the low, he was awarded the Low Amateur Award at this year's U.S. Open this past weekend, as he was the only amateur out of 13 to make the cut. He finished with a final score of 18 over, which was good enough for T51 in a stacked field uh, in this year's U.S. Open at Wingfoot in New York. Uh, he actually, he played really, he played really solid, especially in that first round. I know he was sitting about one under, he was I think he finished around top 10, top 25 in fairways uh, hit and greens and regulation. So really solid performance out of an FSU golfer. He was one of two FSU golfers in this U.S. Open field alongside Daniel Berger. Brooks Kepka did not play, 
And sadly, we didn't get to see Brooks against Bryson because Bryson DeChambeau just dominated the course, finishing six under this weekend at Wingfoot. But I'll be recognizing John Pack as the true U.S. Open champ because of my uh, my love-hate relationship with Bryson DeChambeau. <laughs> but anyways, let's get into some NFL talk. We're joined by V89 veteran and Tomahawk Talk rookie Bryce Roden. Your Steelers survived the late uh, the late second half comeback there by the Broncos yesterday in a 26 to 21 win in Denver. How are, what are your feelings right now about the boys in yellow and black? Um, I'm feeling pretty good to be honest with you. I mean, the Steelers, you know, last year they were eight and eight. Um, you know, we had to go through multiple quarterbacks with Rudolph and Duck Hodges, and it's great to have Big Ben back on the field. Uh, in these two games that he's been in, that he's performed very well. And I think us and the rest of the Steel Nation are very happy to have him back. Um, he's been doing quite a great job. And as well as our defense has stayed pretty steady. Um, we had seven sacks last week against the Broncos, who are really bringing the pass rush. Uh, Bud Dupree and T.J. Watt have been holding their own, of course. And our rookie receiver, Chase Claypool, that we drafted, there might have been a lot of speculation coming from others. Um, but he's, he's proved himself this week coming up with a touchdown coming up big for us and as well as our running backs you know Benny Snell James Conner they've been putting in the workload um just all around like I'm happy to see him back for 2-0 I mean this is a championship caliber team arguably that could go head-to-head with the Ravens and it was unfortunate last year it happened but I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of the season as long as you can stay healthy and Mike Tomlin can work his magic I, I see us going you know, competing in the AFC North uh, to become champions um, along with the Ravens there. Well, you talk about your team staying healthy right now, and that's something I'd say the Steelers are doing well with at the moment, but maybe not the rest of the league, especially yeah. looking at the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, right. we're going to talk about this right now. We we got a whole laundry list of players that went down yesterday. In, uh, it's really sad to see, really, because there was on the 49ers we got Nick Bosa defensive end with the Nick or it is a torn ACL now reported uh, defensive end Solomon Thomas undisclosed knee injury Jimmy Garoppolo high ankle sprain which will be about 46 weeks and then running back Raheem Mostert with a sprained MCL and then also not to mention D Ford who was already out this previous week with a neck injury so I mean that's just one that's probably the biggest this is probably the biggest team yeah that's going to be experiencing the, this level or this amount of injuries, especially to big-name players. How is this really going to affect the Niners heading down the line? I mean, it's going to be tough for them, especially because they're losing some key guys on their team. Nick Bosa is potentially the best player on that team across offense and defense. I think many would say that. Jimmy Garoppolo, I mean, people don't sing his praises that often, but he's a solid starting quarterback in the NFL. And I would say the drop-off from him to... Nick Mullins is pretty considerable uh, looking at how the two played uh, during their different tenures on Sunday's game. Uh, so, I mean, Nick Mullins had that one solid Thursday night game a couple years ago, his first game in the NFL that made everybody think, oh, this dude's going to be the, the rage of the league. And he's not really replicated that since. Maybe he can in Jimmy Garoppolo's absence, but I don't really have faith in him to do that. So, I mean, for a team that made the Super Bowl last year, for a team that competes in a division as tightly contested as the NFC West is going to be, these these blows, all of them, are just brutal. This especially hurts me because the Niners were my Super Bowl pick. So, mm, I mean, right. that's pretty much just throws it out of the window, especially with the way that the rest of the NFC West is playing right now. I mean, we're going to talk about it later. The Seahawks looked great. The Cardinals have been looking solid, too. I mean, my pick, my or the, was it the... Uh, our little game that we played last week when I said the Cardinals can be a top two team in the West might not be looking so irrational anymore. I didn't say it was irrational. I think I was I the only one to say it was rational. Mm-hmm. But. but we can touch on some of the other injuries right now. And the, a couple of the other big ones, running back Saquon Barkley, torn ACL, out for the year. That sucks. Christian McCaffrey, also like Jimmy Garoppolo with a high ankle sprain. So that should be about four to six weeks there. But this Giants just can't catch a break with Saquon. I mean, he was out for about eight weeks or so last season. That really hurt. And now he's going to be done for the year. Is there any way Saquon can come back from this? Uh, Bryce, we'll start with you on this one. Um, I don't know. I mean, based on the fact that he was out last year and then with this torn ACL, a lot of his players are expected to you know, miss a whole year with this. So, I mean, as of right year, probably not. And going forward, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, I think he can bounce back, but he's definitely not going to be where he was before. I mean, mentally, I mean, obviously physically, but mentally as well. I don't know. It, it's it's going to be a toss if he's going to be able to come out of this one or not. 
Yeah, I mean, Saquon already looked kind of not hurt, but he, he, he didn't look nearly as effective as he was last year against the Pittsburgh Steelers in week one. That was one of the worst performances of his career. So just tacking this ACL injury onto it is just adding, I, I was going to say insult to injury, but really injury to insult is the proper way to phrase it. Um, but as Bryce said, like, it is tough for any athlete to come back from an ACL. You see those miracle stories sometimes where players are just able to reinvent themselves after a season-ending injury and go on to have the most fruitful years of their career after the fact. But, I mean, it, it's going to be tough. But for someone that was one of the most dominant running backs in the NFL, college football really, uh, his tenure at Penn State was something to behold. Um, I have faith that he can get back to at least like 75-80% of what he was last year. And then we can kind of keep moving through here. The Broncos, Drew Locke goes down with a sprained AC joint. And then wide receiver Cortland Sutton also torn ACL. That's a whole lot of ACLs torn this weekend in the NFL. But for the Broncos, they were really, they looked pretty decent in their first two games. There was just a couple, just coming up short, just a couple times there. They got lucky with a few missed field goals from Goskowski in their Titans Monday night loss. And then they almost got it came or got over the hump there yesterday against the Steelers. But um, what's his name? The quarterback uh, now in Denver. Shoot, old Florida Gator. Um, oh my goodness! What was that? Driscoll, Jeff Driscoll. Yeah, Jeff Driscoll oh, yeah. wasn't able to get it done there yesterday. So the Broncos, I don't see them being able to get out of the cellar. Maybe this year, Chargers have a better chance of staying afloat if, if. Uh, Justin Herbert continues to play, and that leads me to the next one, Terod Taylor, who was out with a chest injury. He had some chest pains before the game, literally right before the game, and he went to the hospital. Anthony Lynn said he will be the starting over rookie Justin Herbert once he's 100% again. So is that the right decision to be making, especially with what Herbert did? I think it's the right decision to make, but I don't know if it's the right decision to publicize because, I mean, Justin Herbert played his heart out yesterday in relief of Tyrod Taylor. Uh, Tyrod Taylor, that's the way he pronounces it. I keep missing that. But, um, I mean, with five, ten, five to ten minutes notice, uh, what he said in the postgame interview, Justin Herbert played great for a rookie. I mean, he had some rookie mistakes, as every rookie quarterback is going to do, but he played well under pressure. Um, he had the, the Chargers in position to win that game against the defending Super Bowl champions. So... I mean, to Rod Taylor, there's there's something about him that has the organization confidence in him. That's why he won the starting job as in, in the first place. But, I mean, I, I think you have to go with the experienced quarterback once he's healthy. But to say that after uh, Herbert put on such a great performance in Week 2, I mean, that's that's kind of leaving a bad taste in my mouth. Bryce, do you have a take on uh, to Rod? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I would value the veteran quarterback in this situation, at least maybe for a year's worth of time. I think having Herbert under his belt and, you know, getting the reps in before for at least a year before he's ready, I, I think that would be ideal. Um, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, we'll have to see how long this injury, you know, goes for. If he's not back next week and maybe Herbert comes up with a big game, then maybe they'll, you know, change their ways around. I think it's just kind of a trial and error situation right now. I would probably go with Tyrod to be the starting quarterback for the rest of the year but if uh things change i mean i, I have faith in herbert I, I think uh he can i think he can get it done i'm liking herbert a lot too especially what, what i saw from last night but we'll save a little bit more of that chargers chiefs talk till later because we got them lined up a little bit later down the line here but the texans though they're the last team on my notable injury list here and wide receiver will fuller went down with a hamstring it's a tale as old as time with him, it feels like. He's always hurt. He never can really stay healthy for more than two or three games at a time. And he was the, or he is their best wide receiver mm. because uh, Bill O'Brien decided to trade DeAndre Hopkins to the Cardinals. So the Texans, like, they shot themselves in the foot. Bill, Sorry, Bill O'Brien yes. shot the Texans in the foot. That is squarely on him. And he's walking away scot-free. It's, it's insane. I mean, it, it's a tough break for the Texans, obviously, because... He or Brandon Cooks, probably he, Will Fuller, uh, was in line to be the number one receiver on this team in the absence of DeAndre Hopkins. But, I mean, it's just painfully bad luck that your number one goes down a couple of months after you trade away one of the consensus best receivers in the game. I, I don't know if it's karma. I would hate to say that. But, I mean, it's just a tough stroke of luck for them. But it was expected, honestly. It's Will Fuller. Yeah, He's but, I mean, you, you have hope that some of these injury-riddled guys can turn the corner. And, I mean, they never do. I mean, there's a reason they're injury-riddled is because they can never turn that corner because right. they're always injury-riddled. So, so it's just a revolving door of when is Will Fuller not hurt. And so, 
Let's talk about some of the games, though, this weekend. We had the first one. We're going to lead off in it. You're leaning back in your chair already. Austin, uh, this is a painful one for me. Yep. Not, or, sorry, not for, for me. You. For, no, for you, not me. Sorry. This I'm laughing to the bank hall on this one. Uh, Dallas 40, Atlanta 39. The game that everyone wants to talk about today, except for Austin. And according to ESPN, so this is my big stat. I'll let you have the floor. I'll let you go on your rant right after this. But according to ESPN Stats and Info, prior to Sunday's game, teams that scored 39 points without turning over the ball were 440 and 0. They lost none of those games. 440 teams won a game where they had 39 points and no turnovers. The Falcons, though, are the first team to meet both of those requirements and lose. Austin, do you have anything to defend your Falcons on this performance? Full disclosure, we have a Google Doc that we type in every week. Uh, just talking points, anything that we want to go off of during the show. That question was in this Google Doc. My response is bolded, italicized, underlined, one word, no. Because I cannot defend this performance. I, I, I don't know why I had confidence in this team to close out the 20-point lead they had in the first quarter because I saw them go up 20 points and I thought, oh, wow, the Cowboys are just shooting themselves in the foot every single offensive possession. They lost, I believe, two or three fumbles. I, I lost count they lost that many. <laughs> but um, it, it was an awful performance from the Dallas Cowboys in the first quarter, the first half as a whole. Um, but so many Falcons fans, I kept seeing, they were saying, oh, I, I need these Falcons fans to stop gloating. I need the Falcons account to stop gloating. Need, need, need them to stop posting Stephen A. in his Falcons jersey. Because this game's not over. We are going to lose this game. And I thought, y'all are crazy. Which, in hindsight... I'm a Falcons fan. I lived through 28-3. to I should have known that this was coming. I should have seen the warning signs. And it's it's strange because I mentioned 28-3, to Super Bowl 51, the, the loss to the Patriots. There was a point in that game, maybe midway through the third quarter, early in the fourth, when I just knew that it was going to end badly for me. But until the onset... <laughs> the, the beautiful onside yeah. kick from Greg Zerline. I'm, he... just, I'm, 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 just, I'm just fuming. I can't even get the words out of my mouth. But yeah. un, un, until that onside kick attempt happened, I actually had confidence because the Cowboys had no timeouts. There was a minute left on the clock. The success rate for onside kicks is in single digits. I had full faith that the Falcons were going to recover that. But they didn't. And you know what's ironic is that the Falcons have the best onside kick exactly kicker on the team, Young Ho Koo. He's or on the league, sorry. He's yeah. the best. He even had one in week one against the Seahawks. But Greg Zerline pulled a rabbit out of his hat and put down a it looked like a putt at Wingfoot, where the ball just started to turn and started to break towards the ten yard till the ten yard marker. And what baffled me is no Atlanta Falcon wanted to touch the ball until no. it got to 10 yards. They thought they were on the other side of the ball, it felt like. So, Bryce, Bryce, is all that Austin, you can cal- calm yourself down for yeah, a second. Yeah, no, I got you. Thank Take you. Take a breath. Uh, or Bryce, is there any excuse for the Falcons to not pick up that ball before 10 yards? I mean, in those situations, when it gets a little bit pressure, I, I can see where they're coming from. But at the same time, it's like, like no, I mean you, you got to get that ball. I mean, especially when the game's on the line. Like I, like like you guys said, it just kind of baffles me. Like I, I don't understand like the reasoning for it. Um, I mean, you can get shaky, but I mean, you're playing in the league that long. I mean, it should be common knowledge to try to go after that ball. You know. Oh, Austin, how much does that Russell Gage, the pass from Russell Gage to who was it? Um, it was Julio. Julio, that drop pass. How much does that hurt watching it back now? It stings a lot because I mean I, I'm not so much hurt that uh, that would have been the score to give the Falcons the win because I mean they were going to choke the game regardless. I'm just I, I just accepted that fact. But I mean Julio was really limited in this in this game. He said afterwards he had a hamstring injury, and uh, our offensive coordinator Dirk Cutter. Uh, bless his soul, uh, said said earlier today that he thinks that injury is worse than Julio is letting on, which is not encouraging news at all. But, I mean, f- for someone that is a dominant receiver that was held to uh, single-digit catches yesterday, uh, maybe like 24 receiving yards, I, I believe that was, um, that would have been great for him to just blow the game wide open. It's kind of like the Sanu touchdown uh, with Sanu in the Wildcat formation throwing to Julio. I believe it was against the Buccaneers a couple years back. That was one of the most exciting plays in a pretty much lost season. So, I mean, it, it would have been great to see, but it doesn't really... I, I, I don't look back on it regretfully. Like, oh, we could have won the game there. Because I 
don't think that this team would have won the game. I feel so bad for you. When I kept watching or kept seeing the red zone updates for that Falcons game, I was like, no way. They're going to yeah. blow this one. They can't do that. But I'll put you out of misery. We'll stop talking about the Falcons for now. Well, maybe next week. Maybe next week you'll all be better. I mean, we play Mitch Trubisky. Like, he's... <laughs> if you can put up 39 against Mitch Trubisky, I guarantee you the Bears will not win that game. I would sure hope so. But let's keep it moving. Let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. Kansas City, L.A. Chargers... In L.A., the second game at the new SoFi Stadium, we talked about it earlier. Justin Herbert looked good. He put up, he went 22 for 33, 311 passing yards, one touchdown, one pick. Really, really solid game for a rookie quarterback against the Super Bowl, the reigning Super Bowl champions. And even, it's a, it was a solid game all around by the Chargers, really. They, they had this game. They should have really won this, let's be honest. But is there, Bryce, I'll go to the, with you, or go to you for this one. Would Terod Taylor been the difference maker in this game? Yes, an interesting point uh, there. Honestly, I'm going to say Herbert. I, I think either or. I think Herbert, honestly, uh, I, I don't think they would have won the game if they had Tyrod it, honestly. I, I think, yeah, Herbert, like you said, he looked very, very good. I mean, being able to free your performance for over 300 yards, I mean, get a touchdown um, and, and the completion rate that he was at, I mean, he, he looked pretty good, and the defense held their own, only keeping him to 23 points, you know, how they're the defending Super Bowl champs. Like, ah, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it probably wouldn't have mattered. I, I think maybe even Herbert would have gotten the edge in this one. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to go with Herbert still would have is the best result for this team here, and I like him going down the line here. I really hope that they're able to keep playing, or sorry, I don't hope that they're able to keep playing it for Tyrod's health, but I hope they're able to keep playing for Justin Herbert's sake because I think he's a better quarterback right now and he's going to keep progressing and he could be a pretty darn good quarterback right now. And as a Dolphin fan, I don't feel that bad because I know we got uh, Tua on the bench right now. He'll rest. He'll take his time to be 100%, 110%. I want, I want him 110%. But seeing Herbert, it's like, okay, well, we wouldn't have been wrong, with I think, with either pick. So... Austin, uh, where do you, on the def- or actually, let's go to the defensive side before okay. we get to this. The Chargers, they only had one sack, and that was thanks to Joey Bosa, but they did put up a solid job keeping themselves in the game, and considering they were only they're up against the best quarterback in the game, I mean, how do you think they they really did? They I'd say the Chargers' defense is the MVP of this game. I'd say so. I mean, for MVP, you look to Harrison Butker, who had to nail three long kicks, one from fifty three and two from fifty eight before the third one finally counted. But, I mean, aside from that, the Chargers' defense absolutely outperformed any expectations because despite only having the one sack, they kept the best quarterback in the league, arguably the best tight end in the league, and I would say the most explosive wide receiver in the league. Maybe not the best, but Tyreek Hill is certainly one of the most explosive players I've ever watched play football. Uh, They kept him to 23 points, and despite Tyreek Hill putting up 99 yards in the air... um, 54 of those came on that miraculous bomb late in the fourth quarter for the Chiefs to get back in the game. So outside of that, he only had like 50 yards to his name. Um, I I believe uh, Travis Kelsey had like 99, so a little rough there. But I mean, they shut down the Chiefs' run game. Edwards Lair was not able to get anything going. And until the final seconds, you were in doubt, like, oh, is Patrick Mahomes going to lose his first September game ever? And that's, that's huge praise for the Chargers' defense. Yeah, they played phenomenally, and I think this might be the least points we see the Chiefs put up all season. The next game that they do play, though, they play the Ravens on Monday night next week, so that's going to be a great game to watch. But I want to touch on one last NFL game before we jump over to the NBA because we're a little bit short on time right now. But uh, Seattle 35, New England 30. Cam and Russ looked so good in this game, in my opinion. Uh, Somehow Pete Carroll gets away with throwing the ball in a clear run situation, and then stopping the Patriots on the goal line in what looked eerily similar to that meeting in Super Bowl 49. Was last night a possible Super Bowl preview? That's a little bit of a stretch for me. <laughs> I, I did pick the Seahawks to get into the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, so that it's it's half true, I would say. But mm-hmm. the Patriots, I believe, are going to be a solid team, better than I had pegged them to do at the, at the start of the season. But I I don't think they're all that well-equipped to, to challenge the, the uh, Ravens and Chiefs of the world. Bryce, how stupid does every team in the NFL look for not picking up Cam Newton right now? Because he looked good in this game against the Seattle Seahawks. 
I was going to say the same exact thing. I mean, really every single team. I mean, I, I was so surprised. And, you know, even the fact that him leaving the Panthers, I mean, Brady Waters is a good quarterback, but, I mean, like I just don't understand what's going on there. And it, like, he had a great game last night. Um, he was able to throw the ball downfield like, and, and run. and He just really like, – I was surprised. I'm, I'm not going to lie. But at the same time, like, we shouldn't be because we've seen Cam uh, these abilities. Like, you know, maybe some seasons he's worse than not. But, I mean, he's grinding all season – in the, or, sorry, grinding all, you know, time in the off season, And, you know, it really showed. It really did. And I think a lot of NFL teams are, are going to be mad because of that, and as they should be. So I think that was a great move on Belichick. Uh, pick up Cam Newton, and uh, I think his success will fall throughout the rest of the season. I I knew when the Patriots got Cam Newton, it was going to be dangerous, and that's what really I was really angry about that one as a Dolphins fan. So it's good for Cam Newton's sake that he's in a good situation right now and he's doing well because obviously he's I'd say he's been treated pretty poorly mm-hmm. in his NFL career. But what do you got, Austin? Can I just say it feels so good to not like feel obligated to root against Cam Newton because for years. Being a Falcons fan, being in the same division as him on the Panthers, whenever we played, I was just programmed to hate Cam Newton, just like I'm programmed to hate Drew Brees, hate whoever the Bucks' rotating door at quarterback is. But I mean, <laughs> but I'm not I mean, going to say his name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but just for being able to watch Cam Newton play last night and actually root for him at times was a, a nice change of pace for me. See, I've I found myself tipping into that too. I like mm-hmm. I don't like the Patriots one bit, but yeah. I I've always enjoyed watching Cam Newton play because he's a very fun football player. And when they were making that drive down late, I was like, Oh, come on, Cam, let's go. Yeah. Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I was like, Wait, what am I doing? Am I rooting for the Patriots <laughs> right now? Like I had to stop myself. But it felt so dirty. It felt weird. But we'll get into let's get into some NBA talk because there were some good games in the NBA this weekend. Now, first off, let's let's go to the game from last night: the Nuggets Lakers. The Lakers are now up 2-0 thanks to a huge, a huge Anthony Davis buzzer beater three-point shot with no time left on the clock. How big was that shot, and is this the closest we're going to see the Nuggets get to a win in this series? It was it was huge, honestly, because, I mean, down the stretch for the Nuggets, Nikola Jokic was a one-man army. He was fighting to get the Nuggets the lead uh, during every possession uh, during the last minute of the game. And Anthony Davis, he's had this reputation of being a good player, but not any not not an elite closer. Like he he's been known to disappear in the fourth quarter of important games against uh, strong teams. So in the conference finals, a chance to go up 2-0, a game-winning shot that was huge for his legacy. And I think if the Lakers end up winning this championship, that's going to be the moment that you look back on and say that's when Anthony Davis went from good player to all-time great. Bryce, what do you got? Yeah, I'm thinking the exact thing as Austin said there. You know, I mean, regular season and, you know, just throughout his playing career, AD has been, you know, deemed elite. But when going into close situations and games like that, um, he hasn't really distinguished himself as, you know, an elite closer, like you said before. And, and last night, I mean, that was I, – I, I honestly thought there was no chance of that falling. And that was just perfect execution off the play, and he just drained it for the last second buzzer beater. And, um, yeah, I, I think the Lakers are going to be scary. Um I don't know. I mean, the Nuggets may have a chance, but it's looking like the Lakers are going to go to the go to the finals. And uh, you know, with LeBron being in the playoffs all you know all the time, I mean, I just I don't almost see a way of them coming back. And, and AD is a, if he continues to play like this, I mean, there's no doubt they're going to be able to close out the series. Price, are the Nuggets just trying to get down three to one so that they can <laughs> mount another comeback? Yeah, um, I think ideally we'd like to believe that, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I mean, they were the comeback kids for the first two rounds, but I just think this Lakers team is just too good, just too involved with the depth. I mean, maybe if Jamal Murray can work his magic and come back in a little bit more, because we've seen Jokic uh, shoulder a lot of the load coming forward, uh, especially in the last game. So somebody else on the Nuggets is really going to have to step up and help Jokic out for this to happen. I mean, they they've came close, but... Um, I don't know. LeBron and AD, they're a different breed, and I, I don't see it happening. They're the best. I'd say they're the best duo right now in the NBA. There's no doubt about it in my mind. But let's, tu- let's touch on the other series going on in the East. The Heat are up two to one on the Celtics. They dropped game. The Heat dropped game two or game three, sorry, on Saturday, where the Celtics won one seventeen to one hundred six. A little bit closer than kind of the final score shows. 
but their next game won't be until Wednesday. And that's due to the NBA wanting to the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference final to kind of finish at the same time. And I, I don't know, I haven't seen any reports, but this is kind of my personal belief on this. It might also be because ESPN has the rights to the Eastern Conference final and they don't want an NBA game on Monday night conflicting with Monday night football, their other ESPN ABC product. So how much do you guys think this uh, this delay is really going to hurt the Heat or and Celtics? Because I really do think it'll affect both of them. I don't think it's so much going to hurt either team. I think actually this could be some of the best basketball uh, in Game Four that we see that we have seen in the bubble because these teams have been playing every other day. Uh, you see it with the the Nuggets who have had to play literally every other day since the playoffs started because all of their series have gone seven games. Uh, the Heat and Celtics have made quick work of their opponents, except for the Celtics with that seven-game slugfest against the Raptors. So, I mean, with, with three days off, that's a lot more than you're getting uh, during the the course of the, the playoffs regularly. So this could be two refreshed teams going at it. Bryce, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm in the same boat there. I don't think it's going to impact them negatively. If anything, it's going to you know help them play better ball all around. Um, and Honestly, without fans going on in this whole COVID bubble situation, I don't think it shakes things up too much. Um, I think it'll just give them an extra day to kind of, you know, strategize and kind of rest up. Um, yeah, like I don't think there'd be any negative impact. My reasoning kind of behind that question was, I, my thought process was that it's going to kill the momentum of the Heat or the Celtics, whoever wins that game three. And so it might be the Celtics right now that are kind of hoping we they want to be playing on Monday night to kind of keep it going but obviously with now Gordon Hayward being back, it could help him kind of get a little bit more rest, especially after a physical game three there. But Bryce, do you got a prediction for the rest of the series? Because I don't know if we'll have you back on before this series ends. Rest of the series, I think I'm going to go with Heat and six. Um, I think I don't think they're going to be able to coast and you know win another two games in a row. I think it'll they're obviously going to have to fight a little bit more. And I think every game is going to be close. And every game has been close so far. Like the last four didn't necessarily reflect um how the score really was in the end but i mean the other one went into overtime and it's i think it's just gonna be a hard-fought battle but i think the heater can be able to scrap it up and, and win it in six they're gonna be nerve-wracking for the rest of this series i got the heat in five still austin are you making any amendments um i'm gonna have to side with bryce here and say heat six. in six All right. because the, the celtics showed great signs of life in game three and i mean their losses in game one and two were by the slimmest of margins so there are no slouches. They can easily take another game off the Heat. All right. Yeah, I, li- I like these predictions, guys. I like a very heat uh, happy pot or heat happy show. But I think that's I think that's all we got for this show tonight. Thank you, Bryce, for joining us. We really appreciate mm-hmm. that. But that's all we got for this episode of Tomahawk Talk. Big thank you to Isabel DiDio from the Miami Hurricane for joining us and talking a little bit about the Canes and Knowles. And then for Austin, for myself, for Bryce, for Sebastian in the production booth, and Scott on Twitter, thank you for tuning in to Tomahawk Talk, and you are listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.